Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Kings chapter 19. Second Kings 19 this morning. We are still talking about the uh, Assyrians versus Judah, which is really a big deal because they just conquered Israel, right? So, and the fear is that what's going to happen to Israel, what happened to Israel, is what's going to happen to Judah. But uh, they've been going back and forth. King Hezekiah and King Sennacherib, which are names that will be uh, super important to know for the Cahoots game. And uh, then we finally heard from the Lord, from who was the Lord's messenger. Does anybody remember? We talked about last week in chapter 19. It should be in front of you. Isaiah. I'm in First Kings. Isaiah. Isaiah. I was like, none of this looks right, but yes, it was Isaiah. So the name, there we go. The name of the, uh, the lesson: Syrian versus. Um. Well, it's kind of broke up into parts. Okay. Because we did the first half last week, and we're hopefully going to finish it up this week. Kind of like we did chapter 18. So we talked about last week Isaiah's uh, message of encouragement in verses 1 through 7. Isaiah comes to, uh, or Hezekiah sends messengers to Isaiah asking what does God actually think about all of this. And then we see Isaiah's encouraging message about how the Lord being with his people and the king of Assyria blaspheming him and how God will take care of him. And then we see uh, Sennacherib's discouragement while he's fighting another battle in his own home. He's sending a message to Hezekiah saying, hey, don't think I forgot about you. Don't have hope. You're doomed anyways. As soon as I'm done with these people, I'm coming to take your house. And uh, kind of sets Hezekiah back. So Hezekiah takes this letter that uh, Sennacherib sent him and goes to the temple and spreads the letter out in the temple and praise to God about this thing. And that was verses 14 through 20 was Hezekiah's prayer, uh, which we talked about last week. And it says in verse 19, just to recap before we get started this morning, now he's, this is his prayer. He says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdom of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And that is Hezekiah's prayer, God acknowledging Hezekiah's prayer. We see, uh, as we continue this morning, God's reply to Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib, because there's a lot of weird names, and I understand that, Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, right? The enemies that are coming into Israel, or in this case, Judah. 
And so we're going to see God replying to the blasphemer. And starting in verse 21, it says, This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Uh, whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lift up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord, and hast said with the multitude of my chariots, I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the lodging of his borders, and into the forest of his carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done, and of ancient times, that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass, that thou shouldest be, laid, be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, and as the green herb, and as the grass on the housetops. And as corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me, and thy tumult is come up into my ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips. And I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same, and in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards, and eat the fruits thereof. So this is God's reply to Sennacherib, and we're going to break it down into the, the sections we see it. And first of all, we see in verse 21 the phrase, The virgin the daughter of Zion hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. So basically what he's saying is he's, uh, God is addressing Sennacherib here as a father to a gentleman caller. Uh, right? And one that has been utterly rejected by his daughter. You know, like a young man who come knock on the door, flowers in hand. Hello, sir, I'm here to ask your daughter if she'd like to go to the movies. And uh, he says, <laughs> son, she hates you, and slams the door in his face. That is how God is replying to uh, Sennacherib here. You know, you've come calling, you've come courting with your big armies and all your impressive things, and you're trying to show off for Israel, and I get it. But she's not interested, and you need to leave just as any good father would. Uh, but just as Israel is considered to be the daughter of God, the children of Israel, so forth, the church is considered to be the bride of Christ. Right? And in the same way, we have God's protection in a similar relationship style. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28 says, 
so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. That phrase, even as the Lord the church, it takes all the rest of this that we're talking about human relationships and, you know, literal marriages, and we're applying it to a metaphorical marriage between Christ and the church, which means that Christ loves the church as he loves himself. That Christ uh, never yet hated the church, but nourishes the church and cherishes it. And that is his relationship with us. The people, the Christians that make up the uh, metaphorical bride of Christ. That's how he feels about us. He nourishes us. He gives us what we need. He sustains us. A good husband isn't just going to provide the bare basics of what his wife needs and go and fill himself to his desire and leave her wanting. A good husband's going to put his wife first. She gets taken care of. You know, she gets everything she wants, even at my own personal expense. You know, even if I have to sacrifice something that I want, I want to make sure that she gets what she wants. That's what a good husband does. They put their wife first. That's what Christ does. He put himself first. He didn't have to go to that cross. At great personal cost to himself, he cared for us. Amen. And still does to this day. He nourishes us and he cherishes us. Uh, a husband ought to enjoy the time he spends with his wife. A husband ought to look forward to coming home from a long day's work and getting to spend some time with his wife. Uh, we're, we're putting this narrative toward the husbands because that's the parallel to Christ we're talking about right now. The reverse is also true, of course, but from our narrative this morning, we're talking about Christ and being the husband of the church. A husband ought to cherish his wife. Christ cherishes us. He enjoys that time he gets to spend with us. Whether it be on a Sunday morning, like we're doing now, or whether it be in your own personal time for prayer and devotion. And just as Israel is considered to be the daughter of God, so too is the church considered to be the bride of Christ. And we ought to be working on our relationship with the Lord. We also see in the next verse, uh, he says, Against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? And this he talks about for a few verses, that basically, you didn't lift up your voice. You're not trying to attack them or, or you're not trying to prove them wrong. You're attacking me, God says to him. You're proving, you're trying to prove me wrong. Against whom has thou exalted thy voice? He said, you didn't exalt your voice against Israel. You exalted your voice against me. You didn't lift up your eyes on high to take that palace from Israel. You looked on high to take that palace from me, God says. Uh, this thought is a lesson, not just for Sennacherib, but for King Hezekiah and all of Judah. You remember when the messengers first met, and they said, well, speak to us in your language. We don't want to discourage the people sitting on the wall listening. And they began to speak even louder in the Hebrew tongue. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. And then left. 
wonderful person. But this thought here that the Lord just said, against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, wasn't a lesson just for Sennacherib. Right? This was for King Hezekiah. This was for all those people sitting on the wall that heard that. In Sennacherib's attempt to discourage Judah to the point of surrender, he reproved and blasphemed the living God. Now, he's talked about all these other nations he's conquered, right? Sennacherib's coming up and saying, look at all these other countries I've taken over. Look at all the victories I've had. What chance do you stand? Their gods never helped them. They prayed to this God, I crushed them. They prayed to that God, I crushed them. They prayed to that God, I crushed them. You and your God will be just another pelt on my wall. And in his attempt to discourage Judah to the point of surrender, he reproves and blasphemes the one true God, the living God. And that was his fatal mistake. Because all these other gods, they were just chunks of wood, right? Like some uh, evidently very skilled carpenters and uh, you know, workers of stone and so forth came and chiseled some beautiful things. And it was so beautiful to their eye, they decided to turn it into a god. And that's where people like Sennacherib get confused even to this day. They go around and they say, oh, there's, there's no God. What you did was uh, you created a statue and you started worshiping that statue like everybody else does, like all those other gods. You're no different than them. You created a God and started worshiping it just like them. You're no different. And what they don't understand is that we didn't imagine something in our brain and then start worshiping that. What we worship is that which has been... Um, that which has been watched, you know, that which has been discovered. Not something that's been invented, but something that has been discovered. The difference is, uh, for example, who invented electricity? Thomas Edison. Nope. I don't know. You don't know? God. Trick question. It wasn't, though, because it goes along with exactly what I'm talking about here. We didn't invent electricity. What did we do? No. We discovered it. The electricity already existed. Benjamin, Flank, Benjamin Franklin discovered it with a kite and a key. The electricity already existed. We just discovered it. Right? Same thing. We didn't invent God. We discovered him. Right? It was already out there for us to find and to see. We didn't carve a stone statue. We didn't carve a piece of wood. We just saw things that already existed. Things that other people had been blinded to by the devil to the point that they just can't see it. Even when you lay it out for them. There is evidence that every piece of rock and so forth throughout the universe came into existence at the same time. Right? And scientists have their explanations for this, but my explanation for it is because it was all spoken into existence at the exact same time. Talk about how the universe is billions and billions of years old from the Big Bang Theory. And it would look like that, though, wouldn't it? Because when God created the fish... Did he create them as eggs? No. He created fish. 
And he created them by the, the thousands that go out into the ocean. When God created the birds, did he create baby birds? No, he created fully grown, fully matured adult birds, right? Same thing with the creeping things and the cattle and the dinosaurs and all these other things. When God created them, he didn't create them. He didn't create a dog as a puppy. No, it started off as a fully grown, fully matured dog. I'll prove it to you. When God created Adam, did he create Adam as a baby? No, he created a fully grown, fully matured man that never knew what it meant to have a childhood. Adam never was a child. Adam never had a childhood. He was probably in his 30s when he was one year old. That is the way the earth and space work. God didn't create a brand new baby universe. He didn't create a brand new baby planet. It's going to look like it's millions of years old because it was millions of years old on day one. That is the evidence we have of our God. It's out there. It exists. The Bible says, Paul wrote in Romans 1, that the, uh, I'd have to go up and look it up, but basically that the, the, the threefold power of God is explained throughout the universe. There are so many different threes in the universe. How many states of matter are there? Three. Solid, liquid, gas. There, you can go on and on and on about the threes in the universe. We didn't create something. We discovered it. God was already out there. And that is the difference between what we believe and what they believe. Sennacherib couldn't understand that. He thought the God we worship was just like all those other religions. But our religion is the only one with an empty tomb. They talk about the death of Buddha, right? They can go and show you where Muhammad is buried. They worship the site. The Jews talk greatly about the bones of Moses. Right? Our religion is the only one with an empty tomb. That's the greatest proof of Christianity. You want to disprove us, bring me the body of Jesus. Because every few years they try to do that, don't they? Some new Discovery Channel special where they discovered the bones of Jesus. Comes out in all the newspapers and everything. We found the bones of Jesus. And a couple of days later, they're like, oh, wait, wait, it was the wrong Jesus. It's our fault. And you know why they do that? Because Jesus is the Greek, Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Every time they find a Joshua, they think they found Jesus. We found it, we found it. Never mind. One time they finally thought they got him because it was a real Christian site. And then they were like, oh, never mind. This is one of his disciples. After all these years, all the technology they have to search and discover and find things, they have yet to find the bones of Jesus. We still have an empty tomb. We didn't invent it. We discovered it. When people in our world speak with such disrespect and contempt toward what we believe, they don't just insult us. They insult the Lord himself. When they attack with such ferocity our belief system, they need it to be wrong. They need it to be false. They need it to be untrue. Why? Because they feel guilty about the things that they've done. 
And if we're right, they have done something horrible. And instead of accepting that and repenting of it and coming to the Lord, they need there to be no God so that they can come up with their own belief system that's more convenient for them. So that way, truth is a matter of perspective. If there is no God, truth is a matter of perspective. It's true to me from a certain point of view, and that's all there is to it. If there is no God, that's quite true. But if there is a God, it's his viewpoint that matters and nobody else's. What does the Bible say? Let God be true and every man a liar. Your point of view does not determine truth. If you spin a tale to yourself and convince yourself that something's true from a different perspective, you've convinced yourself of a lie is all that is. Truth is not a matter of a point of view. Truth is a matter of God's point of view. End of story. When they come at our belief system with such ferocity, they don't just come at us. Don't feel as though you're being attacked, because really it's God that's being attacked. John 15, 18 says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We don't need to go out making enemies or looking for enemies. We just stand for truth. Eventually somebody will find you that doesn't like it. We don't have to go out looking to cause problems for people or making somebody feel bad about themselves. The word of God ought to be something that we use to uplift one another, encourage one another, and give each other hope. But no matter how encouraging and uplifting a message it is, there's always going to be those people that don't like it. He also says to him, I know thy abode. Imagine picking a fight with somebody, and he looks at you, and he says, I know where you live. That's an intimidating thought, right? They might visit you in your home in the middle of the night. I know where you live. I know you're going out and you're coming in. He says, I know what time you leave your front door. He says, I know what time you walk back home every single day. I know every step of your whole life. I watch you all day, every day. You're picking a fight with somebody. And they know where you live, they know where you go, they know what you do, they know exactly what time you do it. That's a scary enemy to have, isn't it? But man, what an ally that would be, huh? You'd say, you know what, let's be friends. Actually, I got some people I'd love you to check out for me, right? That is the Lord. God is teaching Sennacherib that he knows what kind of a person he is because he sees him when nobody else is around. Right? He says, I know your abode. I see you in your room when you're alone. I see you in your house when you're by yourself. I see you in the car on the way to work. I see you when there's nobody else around. And I know what kind of person you are. It's one thing to do the right thing when somebody's watching you. Amen. Or there might be some sort of consequences. But God calls us to righteousness at all times. Proof? Anybody ever heard of a highway in Germany called the Autobahn? What is the speed limit for the Autobahn? There's not one. So what do people do? They go as fast as they can. What is the speed limit out here on 156? 
near our house? 60. 60. What do people do Seven. there? But not as fast as they want. Mm -hmm. Why? Exactly, because you might get pulled over. Consequences. You see, it's one thing to do the right thing when somebody's watching or because there might be consequences. It's a different thing altogether because God calls us to be righteous at all times. He says, I know what kind of person you are when it's just you, when there's nobody else in the house, when there's nobody else in the car. You're there by yourself with your thoughts. I, God says, I know what kind of person you are. He wants us to do right. It's easy to do right when there's consequences. When, there, when you see the police officer up on top of that hill and you know to slow down. A Christian should stay that speed. You should always drive as though you're passing a police officer. Amen. The Bible tells us that we should obey every ordinance of man. My dad is a, uh, worked at a, as a code enforcement officer for many, many years. And uh, in church one day and pastor stood up and was preaching and that verse came up and I saw him highlight that verse in his Bible. <laughs> what does that teach us? That teaches us that if there's a law that says your grass shouldn't get too tall, you mow your grass. Right? Well, it's my grass. I do what I want to with it. No. That's God's grass. It's not your grass. That's the Lord's grass. And if God wants you to obey every ordinance of man with his grass, you do it. Right? Maybe things you didn't think about. Kids go out and play in that tall grass, get bit by a snake. Gets to the dry season, a little spark. Somebody flicks a cigarette out of the side of their car, and there goes your house. These laws exist for a reason, and God knows that, and he wants us to obey every ordinance of man. You know why you're supposed to follow the speed limit? Because if you don't, you could die. You say, oh, how often does that happen? Driving through Denton. What, two days ago? Yeah. Denton in general. <laughs> yeah. Two days ago, we're driving through Denton. We're at a stoplight, and it's part, it's a three-way. There's three different lanes right there. And we hear a, a, a crashing sound. And look over, and we see the truck, two lanes over, has, like, been shoved forward. And I was like, uh-oh, fender bender. And look over, the car behind them was getting out, was mad, and I'm like, wow, what is he mad for if he caused the wreck? I looked to the car behind him, and that guy is flailing his arms and screaming, and I can't tell you what he was screaming because I'm a Christian. Then I looked to the car behind him. Completely total. The front part of their car came in like an accordion. It was bad. Praise the Lord, nobody died. But the laws exist for a reason. And even if they didn't, we as Christians should obey every ordinance of man, whether we agree with it or not. Remind me sometime to teach a lesson on the difference between um, freedom and liberty. People in our country get that confused a lot of the times. It's a free country. No, it's not. We have certain liberties that other countries don't have. That's what makes us such a great nation. But you're not free to do whatever you want to because you had a thought. There's a difference between freedom and liberty. There's an important lesson Sennacherib needs to learn that God knows what kind of person he is, whether he's by himself or not. God sees him. The question for us this morning becomes what kind of person are we?
What kind of person are you when you're by yourself? When there's nobody else there, when there's no consequences, you can get away with whatever you want to, how do we react? Isn't there a movie, some sort of a horror movie? I don't watch horror movies for many reasons, one of which is because they're stupid. Uh, but also because they're full of things that I don't think a Christian should be watching. But there's some movie out there about when, uh, you know, it's legal to break any law, right? Like you can go murder the purge. Is that what it's called? Don't watch that, okay? Just because I gave you the title of it. Uh, but I think basically the concept is uh, there's no more law. You can go out and do whatever you want to, so people go out for like one day. And so for people can go out and kill people and do all kinds of horrible things, and there's no consequences to it. And so they do, they all go out and they do horrible things. I don't know, I've never seen it before. I have no idea what actually happens, but I've seen the commercial. Right. Um, and that is basically the concept here. It is how do we behave when we can do whatever we want to. Right? For a Christian, we can never just do what we want to. You're not allowed to do whatever you want to. Why is that? It's because the Bible says you're bought with a price. You belong to the Lord now. We should do what he wants to. But I tell you what, that's a pretty good deal because he's a pretty good Lord. You couldn't ask for a better master than Jesus. He's a great master. If you have to serve a master, which you do, you have to serve one of two masters. I would pick Jesus. That's the best deal. The other one, you don't usually know you're serving a master. He's more subtle about it. You think you're doing whatever you want to. You don't see the marionette strings making you want to do things. Amen. That was the lesson Sennacherib needed to learn. That's the lesson we need to learn. He knows our abode, our going out, our coming in. He knows Sennacherib's rage against him. Which brings us to our final point in 2 Kings 19. God's promise to Judah in verse 30. It says, And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city, to save it for mine own sake and for my servant's sake. Now before you keep reading, Highlight this next verse. And it came to pass that night that the angel, the angel of the Lord, went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, and hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. Not a hundred, fourscore, and five. A score is twenty. So four is twenty, forty, sixty, eighty. So 185, not 185, 185,000 Assyrian warriors. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. 
One angel. One angel, folks. Stick a fork in them, they're done. This was not a pretty girl with wings. She does not have a robe holding a harp up in heaven. This was a real angel. And you never see him coming. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. Yeah, he didn't have any soldiers left. And went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of uh, Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That is part of the job description then. Reading funny names. Yeah. God's promises to Judah. Man, a lot just happened, didn't it? But I want to take a look at a few phrases that God talked about Judah specifically, because that's the parallel to us, right? He says a couple of things specifically in verse 30 about Judah. He says, firstly, that they shall yet again take root downward. Which is the direction you want your roots to go, right? If you're planting something, you want the roots to go downward and really deep downward. If the roots went up, you'd have a huge problem. That'd be pretty weird. Any plant that has deep roots is really hard to destroy. Right? Have you ever tried to pull weeds? And you come to a weed whose roots run really deep, and you can't just cut it off because if you cut the weed like that, it's just going to grow back. Like the next day. It's like magic. It's crazy. It's frustrating. What do you got to do? You got to kill it at the root. Now, there's a few ways you can do that. I think they make some sprays that you can spray on the weeds that should kill them. But if you've got to pull them by hand and you get to one of those weeds that's got deep roots, you're in for a lot of work. Anything with deep roots is hard to destroy. A tree that's tall and big has just a longer root system going downward as it has trunk that goes upward. I didn't know that till the other day. That the bigger the tree, the longer and deeper the roots go. So if you're looking to take down a tree, you've got some work to do. You can't just cut down the trunk, right? You gotta also take care of that whole underground system. Sennacherib discovered that when Judah's roots run deep in the Lord, he was not able to pluck them out. So then our question for this morning becomes, how deep do our roots go in God? When Satan comes knocking on your door, and he will, will you have deep roots? Will you be able to endure is trying to pull you up by the root and remove you from the garden of the Lord. Because he will come knocking. He will come try to remove you from the Lord's garden. Our roots should run deep in God if we're to endure. Multiple parts in the New Testament, the Bible says, watch, stand, and quit ye like men. In other words, that we should be strong, we should endure, we should survive. 
Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Our job isn't to conquer. Our job isn't to defeat or destroy. That's his job. Our job is to survive. That's hard enough. Me and Amanda were talking about the other day. Hey, what happened to that Bible teacher? Oh, they're not, uh, you know, what happened to that youth, uh, that youth pastor that so-and-so used to have? You know, oh, they don't go to church anymore. They're divorced, you know. Oh, you know, they don't, uh, they don't preach anymore. They don't, you know, just one after another after another. Man, it's, it's hard enough just to survive. Our roots have to go deep. And there are some people out there whose roots don't go deep, but they look like they do. They're superficial. They're surface Christians, and they look like they've got it all together. But their roots are very shallow, and one good breeze, and they're gone. And it doesn't take much. Our roots must go deep, and like roots, that's something nobody can see but you. Only you know how deep your roots in the Lord are. And if they're deep, we will endure. He says, uh, take root downward. But then he also says to bear fruit upward. And there's a um, sort of play on words here. You notice the symmetry of roots growing downward, growing downward and growing upward. You need to grow in both directions. To be the kind of tree that God wants us to be. To bear fruit upward, one part of the blessing of the Lord was bearing down and surviving, and then they would come to the part afterward where they could grow tall and mighty, bearing much fruit. Anybody ever seen a bug's life? Yeah. He picks up that rock to show dot, and he's like, pretend it's a seed. She's like, but it's a rock. And he's like, I know it's a rock, pretend it's a seed. And he talks about the tree and how that mighty tree that is too big for them to even fathom came from a little seed that he could hold in his hand as an ant. And she's like, but it's a rock. I know it's a rock. It's a great movie. You should check it out. That one do watch. We all start off as seeds. Our growth is dependent on how much we let the Lord grow us. Roots downward. And fruit upward. Uh, for anything to grow, anything in the world, you name it and it grows, this is required. The one resource that is the most frustrating resource to cultivate for anything to grow is time. For anything to grow, it is going to take longer than you want it to. Every time. It's going to be harder work than you want it to be. Every time. And personal growth and spiritual growth, they're the same way. You ever been in, you don't have to answer this one out loud, but you ever been inspired by a movie? I'm, I'm, I love good clean movies that have a real inspiring story to it. I love that. As long as it's not too cheesy. And uh, I have been a few movies that have inspired me over the course of time and I love that. But the thing about when you go to watch a movie like that, you want to go out and you want to be that kind of person you know, that you want to be. You're inspired by that movie. You want to go out and you want to just be the, the ultimate version of yourself or whatever. 
But the thing about that is to become that person takes time, right? Experiences and personal growth and daily study in the word, daily prayer. Every single day, we slowly grow into the person we're meant to be. And unfortunately, it takes longer than we want it to. Just as the gardener gets anxious to see the fruit of his labor, so too do we get tired of waiting for our labors in prayer and study to produce spiritual fruit of blessing. To become the mighty oak that God is cultivating us to become takes longer than we want it to. I want to say the last phrase I wanted to talk about this morning was, it says, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians. And we did talk about this a little bit. But we finally see an exhibition of the power that one angel has. And yet, imagine all the angels under God's control. That's power. The angels, the legion of angels, when Jesus, that really colors it when Jesus said he could have called forth a legion of angels. Buddy, he didn't need a legion. You send the worst angel they got. You send the Gomer Pyle version of angels down there for Jesus, he's got it done. You imagine that? Jesus decides he needs an angel's help, and they send Gomer Pyle angel down there, and he says, Well, golly, Jesus, we're going to go get back to heaven today. You might think, Ah, oh, I can take this angel. You can't. I, you, you can't take that one. He's got it. One angel. And he's got a legion of angels to his credit. And I do you one even better than that. He doesn't even need the angels. You know what happened in the garden before they took him just to prove he didn't need those angels that he said he could have called earlier? When Peter pulled that sword and was like, ah! And he says, Peter, stop. I don't need your sword. I have a legion of super soldiers in heaven waiting for my call. And they were, too, I believe, with every fiber of my being. They were watching Gethsemane happen with their, the hilt of their sword on their, in their hand, ready to go down and defend their Lord. I believe that with my whole heart. And Jesus is like, Peter, look, if you could see what I see, you don't need, I don't need the sword. They come to him and they say, who are you? Are you who we're looking for? And he says, I am that I am. He refers to himself in the Hebrew as the great I am. A little bit of that Shekinah glory bursts through his flesh, and they all fall backwards. They just fall down as dead men, the Bible says. He doesn't need the angels. He's powerful enough on his own. Many times God wants us to accomplish his will. He wants to use us to do his will. What an honor. That a being that mighty and that powerful could look at us and say, no, I want you to be a part of this this morning. I want you to do it. I could do it, but I want you to do it. What an honor. And a lot of times that is what he wants, but sometimes he just wants to show us how powerful he really is. Sometimes he wants to say, you know what, you just sit back and you watch what I can do. That's creepy, you guys. Second Peter 1.16 says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. You'll hear a lot of people 
talk about what we believe is, is basically Hebrew campfire stories. Well, you see, what happened was, a long time ago, there was a man sitting by a fire trying to impress his children with his incredible stories, and he created this story of a being called God. And this God had a friend named Abraham, and from there, these campfire stories went on until you have your Bible. And, uh, and uh, that's a great theory, Professor, except that it's wrong. The Dead Sea Scrolls were not just cunningly devised fables, right? They prove history. They back up a lot of what they found in ancient Egyptian uh, archaeology. All over the world, each different ancient civilization has a flood story. Every single one of them has a story about a flood, and they say, well, it was a localized flood, you see. And what happened was, this bank rolled down and it flooded the entire uh, western bank and it flooded this entire country. Which, if you lived there in that time, you might be foolish enough to think that your little flood was a worldwide flood. We'll forgive Noah for his stupidity. And again, Professor, that's a great theory, except China has the same story and so does this, you know, over here and that over there. And everywhere you look, there's a flood story around the whole... The Native Americans have a flood story. You know, well, it wasn't a flood, it was a worldwide freeze. You see, the Earth has its seasons, and I don't mean the four seasons we have every year. The whole world and its existence has seasons, and hotter and colder, and no, they don't. No, they don't. Every side's 100 degrees outside. Talk to me about how things are getting colder, things are getting warmer when we had a snowstorm in Texas. No, it doesn't. fact of the matter is, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He says, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Folks, if this was a court of law, this had been proven true a long time ago. We've got factual evidence. We've got eyewitness accounts. This is not myth. You have to pretend like a lot of things don't exist in the Bible to make it seem foolish. That uh, parting of the Red Sea story on the Discovery Channel, they like to say, well, you see, Professor, we're getting tired of you. Well, I'll be gone in a minute. You see... They didn't really pass the Red Sea. What they did was they waded through the Sea of Reeds. And by the time they got to the Sea of Reeds, it was low tide. So they could wade through it. You see, that's, that's how that story happened. Well, Professor, if I may, doesn't the Bible say they walked on dry shod? Well, that part's probably a bit of embellishment. Why do you, how, how do you determine which parts are embellishment and which parts are true? So they did cross through a body of water, but the Bible was wrong it was the Red Sea, and the Bible was wrong that they walked on dry shod. You have no evidence for that, no reason to think that, except for you don't want God to be true. So you're spinning the narrative to however God doesn't really exist, and that's the way it happened. With no evidence and no support whatsoever, and they're the ones on the Discovery Channel? We have not followed cunningly devised fables. 
with deep roots though, and the slow and steady progression of spiritual growth, we can be eyewitnesses, like Peter, of the power and majesty of the Lord. That's our lesson for today. I'm a little bit late, so we will be back at 5 after this morning.